Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today, I'm happy to welcome back to the show writer, comedian, and podcaster Kevin Day. This time, we're going to talk about World of Sport, which Kevin watched growing up in the 70s and 80s, although he's not the kind of super fan that we're used to hearing on the show. He's more of a casual fan. And he's a comedian, so he has some very interesting observations about the wrestling business, especially the way it was broadcast on World of Sport. So we're going to talk about the history of that show, and we're going to talk about all the famous British wrestlers that you've all known and loved over the years. Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Jackie Polo, Mick McManus, and Cat Weasel. And mainly we're going to talk a lot about Adrian Street. Originally, when Kevin was going to be on the podcast a few months ago, it was right around the time Adrian passed away. So we're going to talk about his career starting on World of Sport in the 70s, that famous photo with him and his Welsh coal mining father, and then how he moved to the United States in the 80s and the success he had here before he moved back to Wales a couple years ago before his passing earlier this year. There's, of course, loads of clips that you can watch on YouTube or on the WWF Network. If you have that, you can watch their Adrian Street documentary that they did a few years ago, plus all the clips from Adrian's time in Mid-South and Continental and all of his songs and all those various things that you know about him. The other thing we're going to talk about with Kevin is his new book with his Price of Football co-host, Kieran McGuire, and that's called Unfit and Improper Persons, along with their producer guy. Basically, they figured out a way to talk about the finance of football without it just being a boring book. So what they did was they created a fictional team called West Park Rovers that started in the very, very bottom of English Pyramid, which is basically a local pub team and how they managed to build it up over time to playing in Europe. They decided that it's going to be the Europa League, not the Champions League, because their publisher thought that might be a little too far-fetched. So we're going to talk about all the things that are basically going on in the financing of football in England and around the world, FA regulations, the women's game, uh, multi-club ownership, foreign ownership, American ownership. We're also going to talk briefly about MLS and its predecessor, the late great North American Soccer League, which I watched growing up. So we're going to talk about Pele and Giorgio Canalia and Franz Beckenbauer and Once in a Lifetime and all that stuff out there. Uh, At the very end, we're going to talk about Kevin's love of Zelda, which is something we found about that he and Kieran were both playing the the Tears of the Kingdom game when it came out earlier this year. They were talking about it on the podcast. If you want to listen to Kieran's episode from a few months ago, we talked about his playing Zelda in that. And Kevin's going to talk about how he, by now he finished it. And he had the opinion of a lot of other gamers, including uh, people that we've had on the show, that Tears of the Kingdom was a great game, but just wasn't the same as Breath of the Wild. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. strange about a cowboy which makes me wonder how the west was won there's something very strange about a cowboy 
something I can't put my finger on. With high heel boots and fancy leather waistcoats, and shirts embroidered with such lovely flowers, no wonder he would yodel on the prairie. With chaps around his legs for hours and hours, slapping leather with the boys inside the bunkhouse is something I'd appreciate being shown. But I'd never offer cigarettes to ranch hands, 'cause I believe they like to roll their own. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. I'm happy to welcome back to the show today's guest. When we are trying to figure out. What to talk about besides his new book, which we'll get to eventually? We stumbled on his love of world of sport wrestling in the glory days in the 70s and 80s. So we're going to do a little grapple chat before we turn to all things football and his new book and his podcast and such and such as that. So I'm very happy to welcome back in. It's almost been like、uh, almost two years. Since he's been on the show, so I'm happy to welcome back my birthday twin, Kevin Day. How are you doing,、Hello. Kevin? I'm not too bad, Mark. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was trying to remember the last time we were on, and I, I think we were still in the last knockings of of COVID, as I recall. But no, I'm, I'm delighted to be back on. I, I wouldn't say I was passionately in love with wrestling at the 70s and 80s. I was bemused by it more than anything else.、And、sometimes, when you're bemused by something, you 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 become as fascinated by it as you are. As if you'd love it, essentially. So it was a strange part of all our lives. But yes, I'm 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 very fine. It's,、uh, did you have a nice? Have you two nice birthdays we've had since we last spoke then on the same day? Yeah, I unfortunately,、uh, you mentioned lockdown. My I turned 50 during lockdown, so any sort of grand plans that we had. <laughs> Was like,、yeah. well, I guess my big my big adventure for my birthday this year was maybe going to the grocery store, which is、oh, about that's... about all we were allowed to do at that time. So, well, some birthdays are more exciting than others, Mark. I was going <laughs> to say, <laughs> well, I was going to say when I I mean when I turned forty, we did this grand vacation where we went all across North America.、Um, We went to Canada for a few days, and then we went down to. This may or may not resonate for you, being、uh, not being American, but we went to Monument Valley, which is the place where John Ford made all of those westerns in the 40s yes, and 50s.、Cool. You know, with the the two mittens and all the famous that. And then we drove around the Southwest for a couple. So that was like my that was probably like the biggest kind of thing I've ever done. Well, no, that's not bad. You, you get Monument Valley one birthday, and the, the grocery store on the corner the next. So you know, swings and roundabouts, Mark. Definitely. Um. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. It's funny. I, as I mentioned, we had been. Um. Not surprisingly, as as is the case when you're off and on, it takes us weeks and weeks to coordinate our schedules to be able to do this. I think we originally were going to do it in September. When things、yeah. when things came up, but it, I mean it was actually a blessing in disguise because that was before the book came out, and now the books come out, so we can talk about that when we get to it. And Kieran had just been on in July. It was funny; it was right after he had been over here. I mean, he was probably he was at some point in his trip probably less than an hour from me, and、Ooh. yet 
yet we did not record until he was back home again. So it's yeah. Just... yeah, he's um he's a very difficult one to pin down, Kieran, because he's part of the the drawback of being the the UK's leading football finance expert is he's the go-to guy for everybody basically. So it's very difficult to get time with Kieran. We we went to the island of Jersey in the Channel Islands on Tuesday to do a live version of the podcast and essentially we we arrived on the island which is it's, it's like a 45 minute flight from from london um so we arrived in the island around four o'clock on tuesday and we left around six o'clock on wednesday morning because he had to be back for work so everywhere you go with kieran it tends to be a flying visit basically yeah, it's funny. He came. I guess I'm not sure which uh, which was first, the chicken or the egg. Where he was teaching over here in the summer, plus he went to see Brighton play in Philadelphia. So I'm not sure which of those came first. But uh, yeah, it was funny because uh, I had briefly thought about maybe trying to like go up because it's you know like I said only about in the the stadium in Philadelphia is in the suburbs. It's not. Um, Philadelphia has been one of those rare places where uh, all the stadiums for all the big teams are in one place, sort of oh, on, the, okay. on, on the outskirts of the city, but the soccer stadium is out in the suburbs, so it's not, like, connected to any of them, so it's actually funny, it's actually closer and easier for me to get to than it would be for me to go to, like, to the actual city proper, because I know, like, when they played... I think Philadelphia is supposed to get a World Cup, uh, some World Cup matches, I think. So they'll be playing in the the Eagles football stadium, the Philadelphia Eagles football stadium. You know, which oh, is, okay. you know, which is, you know, 70,000 people or whatever like that. And I think the MLS stadium in Philadelphia is probably in the 20s, maybe 25 or 30. That's oh, okay, yeah, yeah, because. Well, um, sort of once MLS hit its stride, and they there are some places where they still play in sort of old, like NFL stadiums and the like. But in most places, they've built the very euphemistically called soccer-specific stadium that we have right. in the United States, where they're sort of I guess for us we would consider them small in that twenty-five to thirty thousand range, which would probably be I don't know like a middle-sized football stadium. I mean, because you've got places like Old Trafford, but it seems like, I would assume most of the, especially your older stadiums are in that twenty-five to 30,000. That's about what Selhurst Park is, right? About that? Yeah, Selhurst Park is, don't ask me how I know this, Mark. Selhurst Park is 26,400, so most of the um, traditional, for want of a better word, older stadiums are around like you say, twenty-five thousand. Fulham have just added another five thousand to their to their stadium by building a luxurious new stand along the River Thames, and outraging all their fans by charging three thousand pounds for a season ticket. Um, there was a massive demonstration at Fulham last week. Uh, it takes a lot to aggravate Fulham fans because they're normally quite placid, but um, it was the most expensive one-off match ticket ever for the game against Man United. The tickets were available at one hundred and seventy pounds from the club, which is the most expensive match day ticket ever for a Premier League game. And, and Fulham fans, quite right, the traditional fans, legacy fans, whatever you want to call them, are, are furious that a lot of them can't afford that. Because people, there's, there's um, 
an assumption that the whole of London is rolling in money and some parts of London are indeed rolling in money and some parts of London near Fulham are rolling in money, but there are also places near Fulham, which is where a lot of their older fans come from, which have uh, quite some domestic neglect, if you like, a lot of unemployment, a lot of um, transient workers from different countries who simply can't afford that sort of money to go to football games. So, um, but already, as we as with last time, Mark, we're getting distracted already. We start off on one subject and we get completely sidetracked onto another one. Well, the wonderful segue to that is that Fulham's owner, Shahid Khan, his son, who may or may not, I'm not sure exactly what his title is with the football team, but also owns a wrestling company. So there's, there's, because... There you are. As you may or may not know, his company, his promotion ran... Wembley over the summer and put yeah. 70, 80,000 people in there. So, um, yeah, so uh, for people who are only casually associated with World of Sport, um, it ran for, I guess, probably the better part of 20 or so years on ITV. And it was part of World of Sport, which for people in the United States is probably, I guess, our equivalent of Wide World of Sports that Saturday afternoon. Uh, sort of sports variety show, for lack of a better term. It's sort of, you know, here it used to be all the sort of, uh, for us it was a lot of like European or sort of like obscure sports. It's like, you know, you'd see cycling or you'd see auto racing or sure. things like that. Which So I imagine the converse is probably true for World of Sport where you got some of the smaller British sports, but also got sort of like your occasional one-off weird American sports. But that's also where wrestling had like its sort of niche time slot during World of Sport for that 20-odd years. Yeah, I, it started in 1965, I think, or possibly 64, and it, it ran until 1988. I think especially when it comes to wrestling, I can't stress enough for your American listeners that they have to get any image they have of the wrestling that you're used to in the US out of their heads, because the wrestling that was on our television was essentially um, middle-aged to old men in swimming trunks pretending to throw each other around. Um, but it was enormously pop. I mean, on a, on a Saturday afternoon, you, you would have 10 to 12 million people. And, and bear in mind that, yeah, we always talk about the, the famous Morecambe and Wise episodes that got 25 million people for the Christmas episode. So 10 to 12 million on a Saturday afternoon was, was incredible. There was a joke at the time because the BBC owned the rights to just about every, uh, for want of a proper word, uh, uh, grown up sport, if you like, professional sport. And the joke was that the BBC was, had bought up sports alphabetically. And by the time they got to W, they'd run out of money. So ITV was left with wrestling yo-yo and zebra racing because essentially what what world of sport had was they, they would have a short sort of football magazine program at the start a sort of a look at the the weekend's fixtures to come uh, but but had no uh, didn't own any of the rights to football so would uh, would show you photograph of the team that might be playing that afternoon and then itv had horse racing they had the rights to horse racing so the main bulk of the show was based around horse racing and they had this bet called the ITV7 which was immensely popular so you had to choose seven horses 
um, and and phone in your selections to ITV with with a five pence per whatever it is, so you could win this pot of money. <laughs> and then they, excuse me, and then they ended the afternoon with the wrestling. And really, from this point of view, most people historically only associate World of Sport now with the wrestling, which was its own little self-contained element. It was on from about four o'clock until the football results came in at, at 4.40. Um, it came from town halls and swimming pools and ice rinks all over the country. The audience mainly seemed to be elderly women with umbrellas and, and tight buttoned up coats. And as I say, there was a spectacular array of strangely named exotic wrestlers. And we all sort of fell in love with it. It's, it's an odd one, Mark, because I've... What people also need to know is that wrestling used to be huge in the, in the 30s. In in the UK, in England in particular, in the 1930s, working class sport was enormously popular. So football was above everything else, but most football games sold out. It was a hugely successful sport. But underneath that, you had a lot of sports that were associated purely with the work. Like in the north of England, for example, rugby league was enormously popular. In the south of England, greyhound racing was incredibly, hugely popular greyhound racing. London had about 16 greyhound racing tracks, all of which held about 40,000 people. In those days, it was illegal to bet outside the track. I mean, obviously, people did it through um, a system of unofficial bookies, if you like, taking unofficial bets. But you couldn't bet unless you actually at a race course or a greyhound track. So that was huge. Boxing was huge, but wrestling was a massive sport in the 1930s, huge sport. And there were many different types of wrestling, but it was a it was a proper sport as well. It was considered the equivalent of boxing. People got hurt. It, it wasn't um, showbiz, if you like. Uh, and it unfortunately, it was so popular that it kind of um, it spread itself too thin because they introduced women's wrestling, which was, was then, of course, very salacious. They had what they used to call midget wrestling, which unfortunately was exactly what it says on the tin. They would have children's wrestling. They introduced mud wrestling, both for male wrestlers and female. They had all sorts of strange mismatch contests. So by the, by the time the war came, wrestling had fallen out of favour. But for a, for a while, it was a huge sport. So it was, it was kind of, it almost made sense when ITV were offered the wrestling, the new form of wrestling in the early 60s as a, as a, as a space filler, if you like, which is essentially what it was. Well, it's funny, that sort of mirrors a lot of the... Re- wrestling history is sort of weird and convoluted here, too, where, you know, like, here it started, I think, probably the way it seemed it there, where it started in the carnivals and things like that, and so that's why, you know, you have wrestler talk, which is very similar to carny talk yeah, and things like that, and, you know, and because it was... a especially in the early days, it was a way to fleece people out of money sure. because that's, sure. you know, especially once it really did become a work, you know, where you had, especially here, you had people that went from town to town. You know, it's very Harold Hill-like, but, yeah. with, well, but with wrestling. And so, but we had all of those things. We had ladies, they were called, here they were called um, attractions. So women's, oh, okay. women's rest, women wrestling, uh, like especially once we get to the 40s and things were a lot more organized, like post-war. Yeah. Um, like 
women wrestlers were all booked for a while out of one office across the country. So, like, yeah. all of the women worked for one promotion, and then they would send them to the other promotions across the country. The same with uh, the midgets. And the thing that I don't think that you probably had in England that we had here, we had wrestling bears, where people would go in and wrestle a sort of, like, declawed bear that had a muzzle on. And, wow. th- and so, yeah, there was a, there were people who had, there were two or three of them around the, that, but that was a huge attraction. That was like when Ginger, the wrestling bear came to town, she would sort of like pop crowds the same way that later Andre the Giant would, or, wow. ha- or Haystacks Calhoun, or in your case, like Giant Haystacks or Big Daddy. Yeah, sure. Well, it's, uh, I wish we'd had wrestling bears on World of Sport. I would have, I would have. Absolutely, 100%. What's that? The, the thing with wrestling in, in this country is it came out of a more rural tradition. Um, it, like counties like Cumbria and Devon, for example, had their own wrestling. It, it, it tended to be farmers who would wrestle at, at country shows and would basically show off how strong they were. Um, and then each uh, like royal household and, and noblemen all had their own kind of in-house wrestlers. Yeah, and they would they would travel the country fighting each other, so it's, it came relatively new to cities, and we didn't really have that carnival tradition. We we had fairgrounds, and there were there were boxing booths where locals were you know invited to step into the ring against some long retired professional boxer who would knock them out of the ring straight away. But wrestling didn't really cover it, and our, our fun fairs were a lot less sophisticated than your. In your carnivals, they were mainly rides and and games and quite simple games involving hooking a plastic duck to win a plastic toy. They weren't they weren't they didn't have the same glamour and and sign of mystique that your wrestling shows have. And we didn't have the kind of freak shows that your carnivals had. So wrestling, as as London as London in particular grew in the particularly in the 1850s, wrestling became a um, a cheap way, a cheap thing to add to musical bills. So a lot of the wrestlers would start in in musicals. So you'd have a musical, you know, you'd have a singer, then you'd have a clown or a comedian and a juggler. And then you'd have uh, two guys almost sort of doing choreographed wrestling, which is how our wrestling ended up. And, and what happened after the war is when the Second World War finished and, and London was was being run by the London County Council and then the GLC. They they banned women's wrestling. They banned midget wrestling. So wrestling got together and, and sort of tidied up its act. So wrestling became popular again. But there's a guy called Admiral Mount Evans. Um, he was, I know some of your American names are very exotic, so I should point out he was an admiral. He was Admiral Lord Mount Evans. And he was the kind of the Marquis of Queensbury of wrestling. So Admiral Lord Mount Evans and a couple of others came up with some some new codified rules for for wrestling. They came up with the two falls, two submissions, or a knockout, and they, they came up with three three-minute rounds. And, and they made it a little bit more respectable. So in the in the 40s and 50s, it became more respectable, less violent, because they wanted, um, as showmen, they wanted to attract um, a female crowd, shall we say, and, and a younger crowd, children's crowd. So, that's when the elements of, of pantomime villains started to come into our wrestling. So it took 
when wrestling was first on World of Sport, it was still quite serious. There was still quite proper wrestling bouts. But after three or four years, along with ITV, and, and that situation you described in America, where you only had one uh, promoter dealing with, with wrestling, that's pretty much what you had in this country. You only had one promoter who brought all the wrestling out. They got together with ITV, and then they started to create these new characters. They started to, I think it's Adrian Street who said, what happened was they, they started to turn good wrestlers into bad actors. So you, you, you had this thing, which I think they had in the States, but here wrestlers were divided into three categories. They were either blue eyes, i.e. the good guys. Um, and that says something about the, the attitudes of the time. So the blue eyes were the good guys. The baddies were called the heels. And the, you also had the tweenies, who were people who could be good or bad, depending on who they were they were wrestling. And what happened was that the ITV audience started to demand that the the heels didn't win. They they didn't want the so-called bad guys, the, you know, people like Mick McManus, um, Kendo Nagasaki, well, come on. they didn't want them to win. They wanted the, the attractive, I was going to say young ones, but none, none of them were young. They wanted people like Jackie Pallow you know, blue-eyed, blonde hair, they wanted him to win. So you started to have this situation in front of our eyes where yeah, it, it just looked like it was it, it was quite obviously fit because the, the bad guy would always, it's like when Giant Haystacks fought Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks would always get the first fall or the first submission. And it would always look like Big Daddy was out on his feet and then suddenly from nowhere Big Daddy would get the equalising fall and then win the fight and everyone would go would go mad. And it, 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 it eventually that also became wrestling's downfall. They went, they veered so far towards the entertainment side of it, the good guy winning side of it, that any element of sport slowly disappeared. And, and over the period from sort of 71 uh, to 79, 80, I'd say, uh, which was still eight years before it came off TV, journalists started to go, hang on a second. Because a lot of people like my dad, I'd watch it with my dad and I'd laugh at the, the, the good guys and boo the bad guys like everybody else. And it, I was too young to consider it fixed. But my dad, yeah, he just won't be too This is obviously fixed. But he still continued to watch it, even though you knew the outcome. And, and the odd thing is that the wrestlers themselves, these were guys that were proper wrestlers. So these were guys that could hurt you. They were physically fit. They were strong. They knew all the proper wrestling moves. They, they would, you know, a wrestling match would last 30 seconds if they wanted to, because they were proper wrestlers. But... They were having to sort of be told what the script or the story was for for any particular fight, and it's and it, and in the end, someone it's like the Big Daddy character just got too ludicrous. I mean, the man was twenty four stone; he was huge. I mean, um, that is, you know, and he would come in in a gold leotard, wearing a, a Union Jack top hat with an entourage of children, and and it's just like you go, this is not this is not wrestling. So anybody who was interested in it as a sport went. And also, we had a, a, a wrestler living across the road from us. His name was Mick Marino. Um, he had the big house in our street. So yeah, we we basked in his reflected glory because he was on TV every four weeks. But he was one of the first who inadvertently gave the game away. He was secretly uh, filmed while he was being massaged, uh, talking about the instructions he'd had for that particular weekend's fight. He's going, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll pretend to forearm and smash him and I'll pick him up and then he'll... he'll tend to land on me so and it, it it was exposed early on but ITV still carried on with the charade that it was it was still a proper sport until 
well, it carried on until World of Sport ended. So it was it was always part of World of Sport. Um, and even when World of Sport ended, it had its own program for about a year until it just died of apathy in the end. Well, they they've tried to revive it a couple different times over the years, including once uh, when they they tried to bring it back in the early two thousands, and that. Uh, that version was filmed uh, in your back neck, in your neck of the woods in Fairfield Hall, just down the road. Yeah, which was in in the sixties and seventies was one of the big. Um, it's it's a big municipal theatre built in the fifties, and in the, in the sixties and seventies it was one of the homes of, of wrestling. You quite often saw wrestling from Fairfield Halls uh, in Croydon, and it, it the thing is it just it it didn't take off again. I mean they. For a start, by the time they tried to revive it, we could all access uh, America. We could access WWE for a start. Like my son, when he was young, loved WWE. Yeah, and and by the way, all that stuff you had in in American wrestling with people getting hit by chairs uh, and rudimentary weapons, we we had all that in our wrestling in the 30s. They were throwing all that sort of stuff in in then. So the new English wrestling just couldn't compete in terms of glamour and budget with what was happening in America. Plus, in the same way that uh, Italian football still hasn't really recovered from several big corruption scandals, people just couldn't couldn't trust that wrestling was going to be straightforward, best man wins, best woman wins on the day thing. So it, it just seemed incredibly outdated. Um, and so it, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And, and also the other problem is that they couldn't find a replacement for Kent Walton, and Kent Walton is still a legendary figure in in, in some people of my generation. You mentioned the name. The World of Sport was presented by a chap called Dickie Davis, who was a, who I met several times. He was a dapper little chap. He was only about five foot seven, very well dressed. Uh, he had this remarkable hair because he had jet black hair, but he had a streak of white running across the side of it. So it looked like he'd come to the studio fresh from painting his bedroom ceiling. And, and, and hadn't spotted that there was pain. But, so he presented um, World of Sport and, and everyone loved Dickie Davis. Um, and Dickie Davis pretended that all these sports were, were serious because, as, as you say, as, with your version, you had some obscure European sports. When we weren't watching horse racing or wrestling, we were watching uh, log rolling from Canada. We were watching cliff diving from Acapulco. We were watching uh, ice rallies from Finland. And Dickie Davis would present these as though they were serious sports. And then the wrestling itself was presented by a, a chap called Kent Walton. Um, and it, it transpires that his actual name was Ken, that he'd added the, the T to make him sound um, glamorous. And he had this strange um, Canadian. He, 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 he gave out that he was Canadian. It turns out that he was nothing of the sort. He was born in Egypt because his father was a, uh, an English civil servant. He was raised in a very posh place called Hazelmere in Kent. But during the war, he'd been in, um, in a Lancaster bomber crew. Three of the uh, other crew were Canadian. And he affected this Canadian accent for the rest of his life. But he he presented the wrestling. Um, and he always introduced each show with hello grappling fans. And he took it so seriously. He took it so seriously. He commentated it on it as though it was the world championship heavyweight boxing final it, it might as well have been Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in there as far as he was concerned rather than Billy Two Rivers and and 
Blackjack Mulligan, you know, for, for just two names that come out of nowhere. And even, even when wrestling was revealed to be a fake, we all believed it when he said he didn't know because he was he was devastated. There was a famous interview with him when it was revealed that it was fake, and he was clearly devastated. So either he was a very very good actor, or he had no idea that it was being rigged. I can't believe he had no idea it was being rigged. But the fact is, he was one of those, like I say, for my generation, he was a voice of our childhood. So when they started to resurrect wrestling again, they simply couldn't find someone to replace to replace him and. So of course, what they did is is to try and present the wrestling with a, a sense of postmodern irony again, uh, you know, very much tongue in cheek, uh, as though we all knew that it was rigged at this time. So why not go along with it and watch it as entertainment? And it it quite simply didn't didn't work. So what you had with wrestling is a sport that in in the 30s was watched by tens of thousands of people live every night in in London and across the country to a sport that was completely discredited and, and destroyed and disappeared by the mid-80s. Well, it's funny that uh, a couple of things about all the stuff you're saying. To me, especially sort of like the glory days here, which is sort of the, for, for me as sort of a more historian, more serious watcher, that prefers that to sort of what the WWF became. Yeah. The, the announcer being the straight man, is like is important to the whole concept working. It's yeah. like as it's yeah yeah. There, um, this is true with um. There's a guy named Lance Russell who who hosted wrestling in Memphis, which is like which was very very big in that part of the country, and like did humongous ratings. Like it got primetime TV ratings on Saturday mornings, but because wow. but Memphis also didn't have professional sports teams, so. That was like the, their local wrestlers were like the local sports stars, but one of my but but he always played it exactly straight. So one of the ways that my friend always describes it, and I think this applies to Kent Walton too, is he's a lot like Kermit the Frog on the Muppet Show. <laughs> yeah, where he's the the voice of reason amongst all the craziness and chaos. That's it. So let me ask you this, Mark, because because there were quite a few styles of wrestling in the thirties. Different, they had different. You know, starting with the old-fashioned Olympic Greco-Roman wrestling to all sorts of different rules about how long you could hold somebody for, whether you could hold them down by the neck. Did different states in America have different styles of wrestling, or was there one sort of generic, homogenous style that was, was watched on TV by everybody? Um. The way I would say it is wrestling is mainly the same across the country, but in different parts of the country, they promoted different brands or styles. For example, well, like I'm so, like in the what the w, the the WWF was originally called the WWWF, which was owned by Vince McMahon's father, and okay. then so. Vince McMahon bought him out in the early 80s, and then he turned it into what the WWF became. But before that, and he worked, he worked for the, he was like their TV announcer. But there, it was all these big northeast cities that that territory ran, and it was mainly uh, big men, not very skilled, and very very ethnically hero based. 
Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. so like if you know who Bruno San Martino was, he was he was champion for like eight years there. And then later again in the seventies, but he obviously drew in the Italian fans. And then they had uh, a and uh, then uh, in the yeah, seven yeah. then in the seventies they had a champion named Pedro Morales who was Puerto Rican who appealed to the Puerto Rican. So that area of the country was very ethnically hero based. And because this is you're talking about New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Washington. So these big giant cities, you know, on, on the East Coast. And then in the South, they had a different style where it was a lot more wild, a lot a lot more crazy annex, a lot more blood, a lot more craziness. And then in the upper Midwest, there was a guy named Vern Gagne who had been um, an Olympic wrestler in the 40s who then turned pro right when uh, wrestling got really big on television in the 50s on, on the Dumont Network. And so he was one of the stars. That's when they had like the original Gorgeous George and people like that. Cool. So then he bought – the. he was from Minnesota, so he bought the promotion there and ran sort of the upper Midwest, and they had a sort of a very more of wrestling-friendly style. Like, it was a lot more, quote-unquote, serious, although they had a lot, But he also had a lot of guys who were big. There was a guy named the Bruiser and a guy named the Crusher, so you can imagine they weren't they weren't scientific marvels. They were big <laughs> blood. But, like, that's how... It's sort of like that was the style they had out there. And then, like, in Los Angeles, it was kind of showy because... It was called NWA Hollywood, you know. So obviously, it was a lot more glitzy and a lot more characters and things. You know, in Texas, was a lot more brawl, brawling in the ring and lots of blood. So it it kind of makes sense the way you would probably sort of geographically stereotype parts of America as you would think. That's kind of, the wrestling kind of mirrors that. You know, it's interesting with our wrestling at its peak. It was it was so so white and so middle aged that they wrestling had to invent its own ethnic characters essentially. Because there was uh, one guy called Johnny Quango, who was um, a London uh, young black Londoner, who <laughs> they gave him an African name uh, to make him seem more exotic, and and his um, uh, his his trick, his shtick, if you like, was that he would headbutt people. But he was one of the few actual black wrestlers. So they had to, there was a guy called Billy Two Rivers who was meant to be a Native American, but of course wasn't. He was from somewhere in the north of England. There's a wrestler called Kendo Nagasaki, who my dad loved, who was meant to be um, guided by the spirit of a, a dead Japanese samurai warrior who would come on stage holding a samurai sword in a samurai cape with um, a, a full face mask. And the whole, the whole, his character was all the other wrestlers trying to unmask him. And of course, the, the, the guy playing Kendo Nakasaki had never been east of Holland, as far as we knew. He was, a, he was from Northampton, somewhere in the Midlands of England. Um, and it turned out as well, there was a, 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 I wouldn't say a huge fuss, but there was a tabloid uh, hoo-ha, because it turned out there were three Kendo Nakasakis, because Everybody wanted the size of Kendo Nagasaki, and wrestling was so big and, and was making so much money for live promoters, the, the one live promoter, the main live promoter, 
that if somebody phoned up uh, and wanted to book Kendo Nagasaki, um, rather than say, oh, I'm, I'm afraid he's, he's working that night, they would send one of the other Kendo Nagasakis. But in the end, they had to retire him, and he had this, this whole bizarre one-off ceremony on World of Sport that my dad watched fascinated where which which they had completely made up and they claimed it was the traditional ancient samurai retirement ritual so they had two young not Japanese girls dressed as geishas and they had a brazier in the middle of the wrestling wing where he ceremoniously took off his mask and, and his hands his face was covered by the geisha girl's hands so you still couldn't see it and his mask was thrown into the brazier and burnt, and then he, and he's, the geisha girls took their hands away, and he had these terrible fake contact lenses in, and this like to, to make him look like he was some sort of ghost, and it, it was it, it was ridiculous. But the rest of the wrestlers were were, were basically left over from when they were wrestling properly. So you had people like Jackie Palo, Mick McManus, Les Kelly, you know, all older men. <clears throat> who was still, I mean, Les Kellich's thing was that he he didn't get to, he spent the entire time dodging in and out and, and not being picked up by the, the bad guys and then eventually finding some kind of Stan Laurel way of tripping them over. And and yet still, we, we, there were people who said, no, no, this is a, a real sport. And then you, you had the giant haystacks and Big Daddy things, which were just pale imitations of the, the, the huge... Uh, villains you had you know giant haystacks was this giant haystacks and big daddy were mortal enemies and giant haystacks was this huge you know great big beard unkempt hair he used to shout at children in the audience it was it was proper it's it's amazing that it lasted so long but there was something compelling about it and and it, and even now like doing a, a bit of research for this just to remind myself of something you you look back at it and you think oh my God, how was that ever on primetime TV? But yet you still find yourself watching to the end because there is something compelling about it. There is something really odd about it. That, that as if if you if you just say to yourself, right, it was fixed, it was rigged, and you go, yeah, but actually it was still quite entertaining, isn't it? It's still something it's still quite funny. And it, it's just wonderful that all these made up wrestling names that Kent Walton and it turned out it was, you know. The, the half Nelson, the full Nelson, the full Monty, or whatever it was, Kent Walton had made up all these 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 names. These weren't traditional wrestling names at all. But this this sport stayed at the the peak of its popularity, and and the wrestlers, I mean, it was so popular that wrestlers would turn up on 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 sitcoms. They would turn up on on panel shows, on quiz shows, and the audience would would go mad. You know, Big Daddy was always uh, raising money for various charities. He turned up on Coronation Street once, and everyone went. Potty, it was always, you know, and, and if, if, you know, giant haystacks, I remember doing a quiz thing once and everyone was booing him. And so it, it was more, I've used the word before, but it was more pantomime than, than sport. But it, it I mean, it clearly from ITV's point of view, it was, it was cheap and it filled the gap until the football results started coming through, which, so from their point of view, it was perfect. They, they didn't want to interfere with it. They, they, they entirely left it out. I mean, they were all, they were sort of independent. They, the, the promote, the production company, the promotion company provided, they filmed the wrestling and provided it to ITV. So ITV didn't even film it themselves. So it was a, it was a strange relationship. I, it's, it's never going to, you know, there will, there will be attempts to, re, to revive it. Uh, I'm sure in the future, but it's, you know, the nature of television has changed too much and the nature of sport has changed too much. Now, even if wrestling now had the, 
the greatest characters in the world and the greatest wrestlers in the world, it's, it wouldn't be able to compete with any sport, let alone Premier League football. Okay, now here, here I'll, I'll throw on a number of things uh, from what you were talking about. Uh, first, it's funny, eventually in the 1980s, there was actually a Japanese wrestler who had wrestled in the States for a couple years who changed his name to Kendo Nagasaki and did the Kendo gimmick here. So, really? Yeah, well, there was a, in, in, the, in the 1980s, we started getting like a bunch of sort of uh, mysterious, uh, as they were called then, Oriental characters who had face paint and blue-green mist and were like ninja, you know, because this is when ninjas first became a thing. Sure, sure, yeah. So, so, you know, we had Kendo Nagasaki, we had a, a guy called the Great Kabuki, who, you know, did martial arts moves, and Kendo Nagasaki actually did the Jap uh, uh, Sakuraba, you know, actually started wearing, like, the traditional Kendo helmet, and the, uh, the Kendo stick actually became a very popular wrestling weapon wow, around that man. time, because, um, and I, I've been the recipient of this before, Kendo sticks hurt when you when you hit somebody with them. I mean, not they don't hurt bad. I mean, they hurt enough to be hurt, but they're very loud because they're uh, because see, they're they're like they're strips of bamboo sort of woven together. So when you crack somebody over the back with it, it's very very loud, which makes it a great thing to use in wrestling. I see. Yeah. Um. But one of the things you were talking about, sort of. The foreign characters. Um, one of the most famous wrestlers um, in the 80s was Japanese. This guy who eventually would become Tiger Mask, and was like sort of helped revolutionize the sport, like making it. Uh, he was he was smaller and did lots of high flying acrobatic stuff, and he was one of the people that pioneered it. But two of the people that he feuded with. Well, first he wrestled it. He wrestled all over the world before becoming Tiger Mask, sort of learning his craft. Like, he was Japanese, but he went to learn and met, wrestle in Mexico, and then he went to England, where he was Sammy Lee. You may, you may remember that name. But he was like a good guy, sort of Japanese babyface. But eventually, he became really famous in Japan and the United States wrestling this guy named the Black Tiger, who was like his evil counterpart. Because that character came from a cartoon. So Black Tiger was the evil Tiger Mask, but for most of that time in the 80s, the guy he was wrestling as Tiger Mask was Mark Rollerball Rocco, who you may know, and also the Dynamite Kid, who yeah. was British but became famous when he went to work in Canada. Him and uh, Davy Boy Smith, who I think was like young kids, he had a... He was like a young, fresh baby face then, uh, David Smith, who became Davy Boy Smith. But one of the things you talked about, big lady, later in Big Daddy's career, um, he got to the point where um, he would always wrestle on tags, and he had like a young, pretty baby face yeah. who, who he would team with. And one of those guys eventually was um, was Steve Regal, then who became William Regal in the WWE. And um, another guy named Robbie Brookside, who was from Liverpool, and became famous in the 90s going on, and like now as a trainer for the WWE in Florida. 
Because it's funny, one of the things that you may not know is although British wrestling sort of dipped when it went off TV, um, it became like this, it became very popular in the United States among certain wrestlers who would watch British tapes because people started doing the quote unquote British style. Really? Like when they wrestle, like when they wrestled the independents, or like not WWE, but like the smaller little companies all over the country. So there's like um, there's a guy named Colt Cabana and a guy named Chris Hero who like became really proficient at this British style with lots of cravat holds and things like that, yeah, and yeah. they and they became the guy who's really sort of put on the poster here for that British style is Johnny Saint who was on TV, but is like, it's funny, I think he may be more known in America as a famous British wrestler than he was in Britain at the time, because while he was on TV, he wasn't one of those, you know, he wasn't Big Daddy, Jackie Paolo, Mick McManus. Um, And somebody somebody we haven't mentioned that I'm sure is right up your alley, being, working in comedy, is Cat Weasel. Yeah, I mean, Les Kelly, I say genuinely made me laugh. Les Kelly was a master. I, it was like watching Harold Lloyd at work, watching Les Kelly in the ring, because he would also, he would kiss the referee when the referee wasn't looking. He would pinch, he would jump out of the ring and nick people's chocolate. He would, he was good. But yeah, the cat weasel. And again, it's it's an indication of how, Hiroka, I mean, you've just been talking about some fantastic nicknames. And that's the thing where, where this is where American wrestling really did for us here because Americans really thought about it as a spectacle, as, as showbiz. I mean, it was much more athletic than ours was. It was much quicker. But also everyone had a, a nickname and also a backstory. You gave your character, your wrestlers had backstories. You know, you, you had proper reasons for the feuds. Most of our wrestlers just use their own name. You know, just like I said, you know, Les Kelly was funny, but Les, Les Kelly, that was his name. You know, Black Jack Mulligan sounds like a pirate, but his name is Jack Mulligan and Black Rhymed with Jack. So there was no wrestler. And, and Cat Weasel was a wrestler based on a, a, a children's TV character that had only just stopped being on TV. So he, he that, that's literally how parochial it was. It, we wouldn't have dreamed of having um, a, a cowboy wrestler for example, or, or a Cossack wrestler, but we would dream of having a wrestler based on a, a children's show, and the children's show being about a wizard who was, was mag- magically fell asleep in the 12th century and woke up again in the in the 20th century. Um, and again, Cat Weasel didn't do much in the way of wrestling. He, he spent most of his time walking around the ring looking like Cat Weasel. The other person that you briefly mentioned that is... Certainly, it's funny. One of the things we were definitely going to talk about when we were going to do the show in September, because he had just recently passed away, was Adrian Street. Mm. And it's arguably now, especially maybe to like Americans, that Adrian Street, like, was so important culturally. Um, people, people may have, especially like this went around when he died a couple months ago. But people may not realize just how incredibly famous at the time this famous picture was of Adrian Street in his full Adrian Street outfit, posing with his father, who was a Welsh coal miner. Yeah. Because there are people, there I'm sure you may have heard this before, there are people who have written, 
like how this picture symbolizes um, the transition from old England into New England in the 70s. That that it, that you go from this industrial, hard-bitten Welsh coal miner with you know uh, coal dust on his face, and there's his son who is this glammed out guy that looks like he was in T-Rex. You know, that that's sort of represented like New England, New London, the 60s, the 70s. You know, it's all in that one picture. That that perfectly encapsulates the cultural change in England in the 70s. Yeah, well, first of all, Mark, don't let your uh, Welsh listeners hear you refer to them as English. You, I know. You, <laughs> but yeah, I know. I, I know the photograph you're talking about. And, and Adrian Streets, um, his, his character, if you like, his shtick was deliberately copied from 1970s glam rock, sort of Mark Bolan type. You know, they had a, a sort of gold lame cape and this sort of rough thing that he wore around his neck and he's very bleached hair and he used to, uh, for want of a better word, really, really camp it up. But he was, again, and it, it's really interesting now because British wrestling at the time is having a sort of cultural renaissance, but only in a kind of postmodern way, in that young people are discovering it and they're talking about it as a culturally significant thing. And Adrian Street was interviewed several times for a, a, a wrestling podcast, vodcast, whatever it was, and was one of the few people left who was wrestling at the time and was a serious wrestler and, and regretted being caught up in the pantomime thing, although he was very good at the glam stuff because audiences really didn't like it because he would blow kisses and he would he would you know British culture at the time wasn't ready for a gay wrestler obviously but he would uh, he would be as like John Inman in in uh, Are You Being Served always said he wasn't gay but quite clearly Adrian Street would indicate that he was but he was a, a he had been a proper wrestler and, and more or less said but he he kind of was a Towards the end of his time, as I say, he's one of the last remnants of those people. Because the, the trouble is, the, the wrestlers on our TV screens were in their 50s then. You know, they were all, you, like Mick McManus was ridiculous. I mean, you could see the dye running from his hair during some of the fights if he, if he broke into a sweat. Uh, but Adrian Street was really interesting looking back on, on wrestling and, and talking about how it was and how he preferred it when it was a proper sport. And it was him who, 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 who where the quote, turning good wrestlers into bad actors came from. But the 70s was a, it was a grim time in in England, in, in the UK. For all that, if you look at Top of the Pops, for example, if you have some of the greatest sitcoms of, of, of British history came out of the 70s, some of the greatest music in British history came out of the out of the seventies. But it was a it was an awful decade. It was a violent decade. It was a decade of unemployment, of industrial unrest, of of class division, um, of a police force that was pretty much seen as a pri- the private army of the, the wealthy classes. It, it it wasn't a happy time. And you know, coal mining was on its last legs. I mean that I think that photograph Adrian Street and his father was taken in the early 70s and by 15 years later our coal mining industry had gone it had had been destroyed by Thatcher's government 
so that that photograph is iconic in a way that it represents um, a seismic generational shift that you know people yeah my joke I'm I'm a little bit older than you so I was brought up on 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 comics and TV shows and films most of which were about the war even in children's comics even like there would be comic strips about the war yeah I I worked as, as a as a kid, as a 15 year old in the, in the mid seventies, I worked in a barber shop and most of the men, the, I used to wash the hair and sweep the, and, and before the barber cut it. And, and most of the men in the barber shop were only in their, their late forties, early fifties, but they'd all been through the war. So the war had been everywhere, but there's a generation, like you say, in the sixties, people started to want to move away from that. And, and you had a glorious period around, you know, two years either side of England winning the World Cup. But the 60s only really happened in London, yeah, to be perfectly honest. And even even then, as my dad said, by the time it reached Tooting, it, it took 10 years for the 60s to reach Tooting. By then he had a bad back, so it was too late. So the, the 60s only really happened on, on screen for most of us. But the 70s happened in real life for a lot of us. And I, and I think it's because the 70s was such a grim, grim decade, looking back on it, that that's why wrestling was was as popular as it was because it provided a bit of light relief. I think maybe we all, with hindsight, maybe we all bought into the fact that it was it was fixed, but we didn't mind because it was one of the few places. You know, we, color TVs were new. You know, for most of us, in, we didn't get a color TV uh, until 1973. I know it's a first world problem. You know what I mean? But you know, for it, color TVs were new for most of us, so you know, you saw colour on screen when football teams played, but you know, wrestlers provided it as well. People like Adrian Street in their in their costume provided a bit of colour and a bit of pizzazz and a bit of glamour and, and a bit of I, I think it was a time when you wanted heroes and villains, but that's a great I I urge everybody anybody who's not seen that photograph to look at it. It's it's really quite sad when you see some of those interviews with Adrian Street on this podcast. I I'm, the last of which I think was only about a year before he died. It, it, it's a man who, I mean, it, there's one very interesting interview where he, he talks about how much he hates Big Daddy because he said Big Daddy killed killed wrestling because he was such an obvious pantomime character. You mentioned the, the whole tag team thing, and tag wrestling was in, incredibly popular. But again, it played the tag, tag wrestling always played into the same narrative that the the Big Daddy character would start and then would, would you know, the first fall would be against him and he'd have to, be tagged out, and then the young one would come in and beat the villain up until Big Daddy came in to for the coup de grace. But of course, the only reason that happened is people like Big Daddy were too knackered to fight for the the whole three minute three rounds. So again, <clears throat> with hindsight, you just think, why on earth did we not know that? There's well, this, this, this exhausted old man. That's the reason he's doing tag wrestling now because he's he's too old and too big to do anything else. Well, it's funny. There's there's a formula, especially in southern wrestling, like I was talking because tag team wrestling was big in the south more than other places. But oh, there, really? but 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 there's there's a formula that it's basically when when like when you lay out a match. Well, I mean, in the old days they didn't they before now where everything really is honestly scripted. Like before, yeah. it used to be basically. The, the booker, the guy who ran the show, would say, okay, Kevin, you're wrestling Kieran. Kevin, you're going over. And he may say, and you're going to pull the tights because you're the heel. And it was up to you two to figure out 
what to do, and you may not do it until you're actually in the ring calling it. So it was very spontaneous. I won't use the uh, I won't okay, I, I won't use the word I word that you don't like, but uh, it, <laughs> there was a lot of that. But in tag team wrestling, there is a thing called basically the formula was um, the beginning part was called the shine, which is when the bad guys made the good guys look good, and then there's a point when they switch, and then it's called the heat which is when the bad guys beat up the good guys. And then you get to the point where the, the fresh good guy comes in, and that's called the hot tag, because the crowd oh. goes crazy when... And then there then there's the end, which is called the schmaz, which is when it sort of breaks down and is chaotic, and either the good guys win or the bad guys cheat. What? So, like, okay. that's, that's, the, like, that's the, like, the fishbone of, of, like, your classic southern tag match and so that's a lot of it was with big daddy too where it was like big daddy would come in beat up the bad guys his young pretty boy partner would be getting beat up against elicit eliciting sympathy from especially the females in the crowd who are there for the good-looking young baby face and then he eventually makes the hot tag to big daddy big daddy comes in cleans house wins you know splash one two three wow that's um I love those. Does anyone know why it's called the Schmoz? Just because it was chaos? I mean, it's a great, I'm, I'm, a great I'm, I'm guessing, again, a lot of, a lot of wrestling terms, um, which is called kayfabe, which, as you, which, as when you look at the word, it's because it's a carny word for fake. It's the same thing uh... where, where you have, you have, um, Carnival, carny terms, like when they would add Z's in the middle. So, like, okay. you wouldn't say wrestling is fake, you'd say wrestling is physique. Or okay. be be careful around the Mizarks, the Marks, who are, you know, the, the customer. Uh, okay. So that's that's a, that's one of those things that evolved here from carnies. And like we mentioned Steve Regal, Steve Regal is a guy who, who broke into wrestling, wrestling in the carnivals. The thing where it was legit, where people would come out of the crowd, you know, beat our champion, and you get 10 pounds or 50 pounds or whatever. And, of course, these yeah. guys were all shooters and hookers, which, you know, all of the old, the older guys were, you know, who could, you know, and Adrian Street certainly was. Adrian Street was, you know, from that, like, that uh, that Wigan school. You know, I don't know if he's, uh, there's 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 a, a, a bunch of wrestlers who are, what are called from the Wigan school who were known as like hookers and shooters. And Adrian may or may not be technically classed as being from the Wigan school, but certainly he's close enough because he's Welsh. But the thing funny, the th- funny things here is about street. And when he was here in, in the United States, because he came over and around in the beginning of the eighties and he stayed, he mainly wrestled in the eighties here a lot in the South. And then he basically lived in Florida Oh, and, wow. Until like two or three years ago, when they when him and his wife Linda moved back to to Britain, and that's you know when he passed away a couple of years ago. But but one of the things they always stressed was as flamboyant as his gimmick was, a lot of times they wouldn't say he was gay, although they would elicit he would suddenly elicit like gay chants and the f word from the crowd yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. But he always had Miss Linda, who was his wife, as his valet. So it's, he was always with a woman who was also a wrestler and 
often beat up like his opponents. <laughs> but they always stressed how tough he was as a wrestler and that he was playing mind games with people. Right. That this is all an act. This is this is yeah. a, this is a tough son of a gun who acts like this to throw people off. Well, that's okay. that's how they like his character was multi-layered that way. And like like uh he famously won a title here in one of the companies where he was wrestling the clean-cut babyface and he just jumped in the guy's arms and kissed him. And he was yeah. so stunned that while he was while he was stunned, he just turned him over and pinned him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say he was multi-layered here, but the character was, was similar. And it's like he would, that's one of his things, is he would, he would blow a kiss at his opponent. And while the opponent, the opponent would either look really confused by this terrible female behavior or would be so outraged that he would lose all control and either way, Adrian Street would, would take advantage. But Adrian Street used to get booed by men in the audience in particular, because he would, as he came into the ring, he would march around the ring blowing kisses at everyone and was he would stroke his body in what Ken Walton used to call a provocative fashion. But I'm really interested in what you talk about the, the, the wrestlers at the Carnies looking for, you know, you could challenge the wrestler for 10, 50 It was the same in our fairgrounds, except it was boxing. Um, and I spoke to an old guy uh, who used to work in fairgrounds in the 40s and 50s. And he said they had, they had it was a science, choosing the opponents to, out of the crowd to fight. The, the, you know, they, would, they would look for young men who looked like they were on a first or second date. And they, he said they could always tell. It's like you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't look at a married couple because a, a married man wouldn't be bothered about impressing his wife. But whereas a, a young man on a first or second date, you'd be scanning the room and, and they'd go, oh, yeah, you look like a likely man. Why didn't you get in the ring? And his, and his girlfriend would encourage him. Or if you saw a group of three or four men together, they were very good at spotting the one that was kind of the alpha male of the group. And they would, they would, they would zoom in on him because they, they could spot somebody who wouldn't want to lose face if they said, why didn't you step in the ring? And, fight. and of course, the, 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 the professional fighter in the ring knew enough again, like the rules of wrestling that you described, the, the first couple of punches that were thrown by the, the, the person chosen out of the crowd would always land, and the, you know, the, the guy would pretend he was in trouble. And then halfway through the second round, he would just, you know, with one punch, knock the kid out, basically. But they always, they always knew not to punch too hard. But the psychology involved in picking the opponents was, was really interesting. Well, it, it's funny because it also works the other way where when they would ask a mark to come out of the crowd, and sometimes they would say, okay, here's three of our wrestlers, who do you want to fight? And you've got, like, two sort of big muscular guys, and then maybe, like, a short middle-aged guy, and you'd be like, oh, I want to take, like, the short old guy, who is, of course, the hooker. You know yeah. what I mean? And so he would get in the ring and, you know, and stretch the guy, you know, until he submitted because he knew all the tricks. You know, and all that. And it's funny you talked about how Adrian Street was booed at the time, and was certainly. Although it's funny here, he 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 went back and forth between being a good guy and bad guy. Yeah. But it's funny now in hindsight, and we'll end with this before we get to the football stuff. Um, that it's now Adrian Street is now sort of revered in hindsight because of what he did in a celebrity match against Jimmy Savile. Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah, you, yeah. Well, it's funny you talked about. We'll, uh, we'll sort of combine these two because I want to make sure I get it in. 
is that you talked about how wrestlers became celebrities and went on sitcoms and things like that. But much like here, you had celebrities go do wrestling also. And I know two of the I don't know if these are like the most famous ones, but like Jimmy Savile was famous for wrestling for uh, off and on over years. And then there's a famous clip, and so this will be the nice segue to football, when Jimmy Greaves, who was in his 40s, uh, yeah. went on, went on to, I think this was a charity thing, went on and, I think, wrestled Kendo Nagasaki. He did. Was, did I'm, I'm, really, I'm really reluctant to talk about Jimmy Savile, Mark, to be perfectly honest. Well, but, we've, we've had... Right. It's just, it's, it's just, you know, we've just, Steve Coogan has just started in a, in a four-part doc drama here. Which was very good, but and Steve Coogan was astonishing in it as Jimmy Savile. But it kind of reminded everybody there was a lot of criticism, not about the actual quality of the show, but about the need for it in the first place, basically. But and the, the fact is that Adrian Street thing, I, I think more people, because it's one of those things you kind of you kind of know about because Jimmy Savile, who was a despicable, reprehensible man, but always claimed that he had been a professional wrestler in his in his early years. I don't think there's any documentary proof of that, but he claimed he was. But he ended up, when he was very famous, ended up fighting Adrian Street, and, and Adrian Street beat seven shades of shit out of him. And I, I think if, if Jimmy Savile's crimes had been less heinous, that, that clip would be shown more often, if you like. But I'm... I'm what Savile did was so repressed. I, 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 no, I... I'd, 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 I'd rather... I mean, I think it's I think it's worth mentioning because I think it, what it proves is that a lot of people in in Adrian Street's world knew what Savile was capable of then, and he took great pleasure. He said in because Adrian Street talks about the respect he has for fighting. It's it's quite clear when you listen to Adrian Street talk that he was much happier in the early stage of his career when he was. When he said wrestling was proper fighting, it was like boxing. It was you, you, you fought actual fighters, and that you, you were skilled and you were fit. And it's quite clear that although he he did the the glam stuff very well and he acted it very well, it's clear that he wasn't particularly comfortable doing that, and he thought it kind of undermined the status of wrestling. But it's quite clear from the beating he gives to Jimmy Savile that he understood what Savile had been up to in some way, but. The, the Jimmy Greaves one is is an astonishing piece of, of TV because Jimmy Greaves, so I, I, it was from around 1986. So when um, St. Greaves was, was just, um, St. Greaves replaced the football magazine show that was on World of Sport. Um, um, and it, 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 it wasn't as popular as people think it was back then. Now it, it's, it, it's become more popular with, with hindsight, but St. Greasy was like the first attempt on British television to introduce humour into into football, into soccer, to to look at the um, the lighter side of the game, if you like, you know, to look at own goals and, and dives rather than proper goals and tackles. Um, and for some bizarre reason, Jimmy Greaves, who by this time must have been I think so. Jimmy Greaves was 28 in 1966, so this is 20 years later. So yeah, so he's 48. He was also an alcoholic, um, but he ends up wrestling Kendo Nagasaki, and it's it's shown on 
sent Greasy for Ian St. John, his partner. Jimmy Greasy, for those of our American listeners who don't know, was arguably the best ever striker in English football. Arguably the best ever striker in English football. He, he would have started, he'd started every England game for four years before the World Cup finals. Um, he got an injury in the first game, um, then missed the next, I think, but he ended up missing the semi-final and was fit for the final and everyone expected him to play in the World Cup final. Alf Ramsey didn't pick him. Jeff Hurst was picked instead. Um, and there's a, there's a fantastic, yeah, heartbreaking bit of film at the end of the World Cup final where where the players in their kit are um, cavorting around the pitch with the World Cup. Alf Ramsey physically pushes Jimmy Greaves, who's in his suit, because he wasn't even so. He physically pushes Jimmy Greaves onto the onto the pitch. So Jimmy Greaves is lurking behind the players in his suit and tie. And he he, he said then that was the cause of his, his descent into alcoholism. So Greaves, Jimmy Greaves was a brilliant footballer, but by the time St. Greasy came along, it's a different generation. So he was reinventing himself as this jovial commentator, if you like, and ends up in the ring with Kendo Nagasaki. And at the time, it, it was funny because he, 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 he pretends to challenge Kendo Nagasaki. He's at ringside. Uh, Kendo Nagasaki has just beaten someone and he's parading around the ring and Jimmy Greaves gets into the ring and says, oh, I'll shut you up uh, and rips off his suit to reveal a pink wrestling leotard underneath. Um, and for some reason, somebody's given him the nickname Gorilla, Gorilla Greaves. I've never been able to get to the bottom of why it was Gorilla Greaves. Um, and he gets into the ring with Kendo Nagasaki, tries to unmask Kendo Nagasaki as they all do, then manages to get Kendo Nagasaki onto the floor, uh, manages to get, nearly gets a, a, a grip on him and, and the, the ref counts to two before Kendo Nagasaki shrugs him off. And then Kendo Nagasaki picks him up and, 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 float, and wheels him round in what Ken Walton calls the flying airplane. And then Kendo Nagasaki pretends to forearm smash him, throws him into the ropes, throws him down. And it's almost like, you look, you look at it now, and it's almost like this is Kent Walton going, please, everybody, put us out of our misery. You couldn't, you couldn't have more evidence that it, this thing was fixed than, than this, than this belt. And it was looking at it now, it's ludicrous. I mean, I didn't see it at the time because at the time, because this was on at lunchtime, if Palace were at home, I was already in the pub. And if we were away, I was already on the train. So I didn't see a lot of it then, but it was just the most ridiculous, Thing and it and it's and then you know Jimmy and Ian and John talk over it and it's there's a real sadness about it now looking back and that because you and part of the sadness is that's that's what passed for entertainment in this country even in 1986 but it just shows even then and that was and, and wrestling was past its heyday but it was still considered a big deal that the, the two different worlds of sport on world of sport collided because I think that was a tagline they, they wanted for it you know the football and wrestling their two biggest sports were were, were joined as one but it was yeah it was, it was a it's, it's it's very tawdry when you look back at it Mark. well because I know they used to say too we'll, we'll segue into football with this that there used to be like a really they would save a really big match to put on on FA Cup day 
because that was part of the whole, you know, you, you, know, you hear people, I, I don't know if you've ever done it, but I've heard people say, you know, the thing where it used to be, since that used to be like the only game that was televised every year, like it, you would yeah. start in the morning and there would be reporters on the buses uh, with each team yeah, going yeah, to Wembley yeah. in, the, in the morning. And then if you were watching on ITV instead of on BBC, you know, part of that would be watching World of Sport leading up to the FA Cup final. And there would be like some probably Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks or Mick McManus or Jackie Pello or somebody, you know, in a featured match right before the, the FA Cup final, which is like the biggest sports day of the year probably. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, um, you know, if, if for example, Man United were playing Chelsea in the Cup final, they would they would find a wrestler who was apparently a Man United fan and one who was a Chelsea fan, or they'd put one in a red leotard and one in the blue leotard to... Uh, to fight each other, but um, it, it's just really sad because my, you know, that was '86, and World of Sport was gone two years later because uh, partly they lost any access they had to to football rights, so they couldn't even show highlights in the in the Saint Greasy stuff. But also because this uh, chap called Greg Dyke who took over at ITV, Greg Dyke is a big media mogul here. Um, uh, he ran ITV and he, uh, well, the, the rumour was that he thought World of Sport was too working class. The truth is that uh, Channel 4, the brand new Channel 4, had outbid ITV for the racing rights. So ITV lost the racing and they simply didn't have enough sports to fill five hours on a, on a Saturday afternoon. So basically they gave up the fight on Saturday afternoon and, and turned to old films and cartoons and, and left sport to to bbc one and poor old dickie davis who who carried on on various other things but never looked it never looked the same because on world of sport he presented standing up and in and it was live obviously but he presented standing up in front of the gallery so you could see stuff going on you could see the reflections of the cameras in the background so he never seemed happy in a normal studio and an indication of how English TV, British TV was at the time. There's one, and you can still see this, you can Google it. If you Google Eric Walken, World of Sport, um, Eric Walken, genius Eric Walken, of course, of Walken and Wise, was Dickie Davis's next door neighbour. Um, uh, and one evening, one Friday evening, uh, and Dickie Davis said it was very unusual for him because he used to go to bed early, of course, because he had to be up very early too. But him and Eric, um, Eric had come to his house and they'd stayed up drinking. And when the taxi arrived to take Dickie Davis to the World of Sports studio, Eric Walker said, why don't I come with you? And, and when they got to the World of Sports studio, Eric Walker said to the director and producer, why don't I go on and do the show with Dickie? So for the first hour and a half of World of Sport, Eric Walker is there basically taking the piss out of how Shonky it all is. And it, there's, there's all sorts of, and Eric Walker talks over stuff interrupts Dickie Davis and it's it's hilarious it's it's really very very funny um but it, it indicates how not amateur but it indicates the sort of ad hoc nature that you know tv was still a relatively new medium for us at that time to the extent that somebody just turned up and said can I come on the show and they went yes you can but Dickie Davis never really recovered from from world of sport because he was so associated so associated with, I, I met him later in life um, and he was still very, very dapper. He had a, a, a yellow shirt and a pink cravat, I recall. Um, but he had some brilliant stories uh, about World of Sport. But the, the trouble is, 
to bring it back to football, it, it's it, it was only you know the, the Premier League started two years after that, and within within three or four years, it became clear that most minority sports simply couldn't compete with football. So all these sports that we used to watch, you know, lacrosse would be on. Yeah, they all just drifted away basically until you were left with a a rump of six or seven sports that were always on TV, none of which could ever compete with Premier League football and never will again. And speaking of competing with Premier League football and football being a business, that segues us nicely into your new book that you and Kieran wrote called Unfit and Improper Persons. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, I'm not very good at business, Mark. So it turned out when I when I did my first book, Who Are You?, um, the history of 92 football clubs and why you shouldn't support them. I, I didn't realise that I had a two-book deal with Bloomsbury. Um, and we were, they approached me to say, right, about the second book. I was like, oh, brilliant, thank you, great. Um, uh, and we were talking about something, and, and Bloomsbury said, look, why don't you write a book based on the pod? Because my editor at Bloomsbury is a massive fan of the pod. He's a Southend United fan, uh, so he got a lot of his information from us. By this time, we were two years into the pod, and it was quite clear that our success wasn't a flash in the pan. The price of football pod, that is, our success wasn't a flash in the pan. Um, so he said, look, at, at the very least, you've got, you know, you're getting 40,000 downloads an episode, which is now much more than that. So at the very least, you'll sell 40,000 copies of the book, which is enough to make it a bestseller and then some. So we thought, well, that's a good idea. But then we didn't just want to write a textbook, partly because Kieran had already written a proper textbook about football finance and football economics. So we, and so we didn't just want to write a book that was like chapter two, transfers, chapter three, amortization. We wanted to write a book which covered all those things, but in a different way. So we came up with the idea of um, a, a narrative. It's almost um, a work of fiction, but based around facts. So we created a, a fictional Sunday league team, West Park Rovers, which the, and the, we got West Park Rovers promoted from Sunday League football right up to um, the Europa League. Um, and again, it's one of those bizarre conversations you have in life with my editor when I said, well, we'll get the team into the Champions League. He went, no, well, that's not, that's not likely, is it? That's, no one's going to believe that. So it's a made-up team. We can do whatever we want with it. So I said, it's no less likely that it's a made-up team gets in the Europa League. But anyway, so, so we get, so we basically, West Park Rovers goes through from Sunday League football to European football. And we use that as a way of um, examining football finances at every level of of the game, right from the the, the grassiest of grassroots up to the the, you know, the the biggest clubs in the country. But we 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 hang it on a on a narrative. So um, it, it's it's almost it's not a work of fi- it is a work of fiction to an extent. But you know the, the things happen to the club, uh, and basically Kieran and I and Guy run the club, and we examine everything from how much it costs to make the garden homes you sell in the club shop to how much it costs to travel to Spain for a, a European game to catering, uh, you know, the exact amount of light bulbs you need in the floor. The, the, the sorts of things that people are always interested in in the pod, but we just found a way of talking about them in, in a, in a different context, if you see what I mean. So at one stage we, there's a chapter about, Women's football, for example. So we, we, our team is, is set up. Our men's team is set up. We're in the national league, and we decide that we need a women's, 
a team because it's the right thing to do. But so, so that we use that as a way. So instead of just having a book with a chapter on women's football, we talk about setting up the West Park Rovers women's football team. But also, so we look at the history of women's football within that. We also look at the finances of women's football, whether it's too late. And, and so that's, yeah, and so we use that as a way of talking about youth football, all sorts of stuff. And, and we talk to a lot of real people uh, in the game about these things. So it's it's an entertaining way of looking at um, the issue because people are taking football finance way more seriously than they used to. I think partly because of our pod, but it, we just wanted an entertaining framework to, to present some of the real important issues that, that are happening to football at the moment. I think one of the, I don't know if this is surprising or not surprising, but it's funny the level of bureaucracy that goes into this, even at the lowest of lowest levels. You're talking about all the rules and regulations even to start like a pub team that's, you know, like a 20-page PDF or whatever that has, you know, all the all the you know boring bits of a of a town town hall committee meeting. Do you know what? That's a really interesting question, Mark. <coughs> Excuse me. That's a really interesting question because I I assumed or I said that we should probably start the team at sort of national league level. So you know, yeah, there are there are four in the league itself there are there are 92 clubs and then you've got levels underneath that with many other clubs that are, some of which are fully professional some are semi-pro so i assume that we should start there which is where things got interesting but it was curious said no no we have to start right at the bottom because it, it turns out it, it it will cost you at least if you're in a pub with some friends and you say right we let's start a football league team or a football team it will cost you a minimum of £5,500 in the UK to start a football team. And most of that is registration fees to various leagues and various cup competitions and making sure that you comply with various regulations. You have to have, you, you have, if you have a, one player under the age of 18, you have to employ youth officers and compliance and all sorts of stuff. And, what I found really fascinating about that is, and, and even in the, the local FA guidelines that you get for setting up your team, it, it, it says it, it, you might get frustrated that this takes so long, but, you know, stick with it. But by which time there must be so many potential football teams that have disappeared or not bothered. And what worries me is that we have a crisis in grassroots football in this country as it is. We have a health crisis for, the, for older people, older men in particular, and yet we're discouraging people from setting up football teams to get themselves fit. It just it just makes no sense. And the, the amount of money it's got, the amount of people, I, I think the, the chapter that most frustrated me was was writing about women's football because I was talking to this girl called Sophia Axelson, you know, and we spoke to people like Claire Balding and Gabby Logan, who are, Gabby is the presenter of women's football. Uh, she presents the Women's World Cup here. She's a, an old friend of mine. She's a brilliant football journalist and sports. Um, she presents with Michael Johnson. She presents all our uh, UK athletics coverage and so on. But speaking to her about that, speaking to Sophia Axelson, who she manages a club in the fifth level of women's football, and she was talking to me about the amount of girls they lose at the age of 14 because we're in a state in our country, thanks to this 
godforsaken government where so many young girls can't afford period products, they can't afford sports bras. Uh, you've got so many Asian girls who can't wear football kits because they're not EGM friendly. So you're losing all the, all the, you know, the age of 12 and 14 girls get self-conscious anyway. And not enough women's teams have got women's coaches. They've still got men's coaches. So women, yeah, you've still got women's teams where the name of the sponsors are across the, the chest, which draws attention to women's uh, press. And it's just like, for the sake of a few quid, for providing sports bras and providing period product, we're losing hundreds of thousands of girls to football. And it, it just, it, it's just wrong. It just frustrates me. And and also as well, this also perhaps has made a really interesting point. Because Gabby Logan and Claire Balding were talking about how you know, we're still at the stage where women's football can be different. We can have a new model of, of financial distribution in women's football. And Sophia just said it's too late. It's, that moment is gone. That opportunity is gone. We've reached a stage in women's football in England already where probably only four women's teams can ever win the WSL. Um, and, and women's football is all geared towards getting one of those women's teams to win the, the Champions League, the Women's Champions League. And that's, uh, the whole system is designed in favour of these four clubs. And there's this sort of trickle-down economics theory. And as Sophie said, it's got to trickle down a long fucking way before it gets to to her club so it's just that was a that was a frustrating chapter but we just we, we just wanted to find an, an amusing way a, diff, a different way if you like of shining a spotlight on some of that and the, the bureaucracy i have to say and it gets worse as you as you get either i mean the, the premier league handbook it's i mean it's about 380 pages i mean the, the stuff in there about the the scientific stuff about the quality of the floodlights etc the, the stuff about access for journal, all sorts of stuff, you know, and it costs you, it's like Luton Town found, it costs you, it costs them probably six million quid to be Premier League ready over the se- over the start of the season. It's it's incredible. And it's, it's, the money involved at every level in getting a club ready for every promotion means that so many clubs have to take a have to take a punt. Yeah, I've got no doubt there are clubs in League Two and in League One. We were having a discussion about whether or not it's financially worth getting promoted because for all the benefits of getting promoted, the actual cost to you when you get promoted and having to upgrade your grounds, etc. if you spend all that money, then you get relegated, you know, you're in big trouble. So it's, it's, and it's interesting. I think, and I think it really is partly because of our podcast, but it's also partly because of the greed of some of the people in, in football who, you know, the attempt to, to start a European Super League, I think, focus so many people's attention, so many football fans' attentions on, on football finance. People want to know about these things now. People want to know what's going on. They want to know that their club is financially safe. So we've just provided a book that gives people the tools to to sort of find that information out and it gives some insight. And, and also we try to um, to highlight those club owners who, who aren't uh, dangerous idiots or wrongans or corrupt and um, and it turns out that quite a few of them aren't so we do try to highlight the clubs that are that are doing the right things but unfortunately they are outnumbered by the clubs doing the wrong things all over the world so there's there's plenty for us to write about um, um but hopefully we we provide a uh, enough compensatory laughs for those people who are furious and upset about the financial state of english football well it's funny too like when you sort of have 
did sort of the history of the sport, and it's like, you know, people joke, it's like, when did it become a business? And it's like, well, it was a business in the 1880s when they started it, when they when they started importing ringers from Scotland to play in factory yep. teams. Yeah, yeah. And man, like yeah. that, you know, like that's when this kind of thing started. It's just, you know, certainly in Victorian England, nobody was paying attention to that. And it's not, you know, again, if it's, you know, if wages are, you know, you're making a pound a week working in the factory and you're bringing in a guy from Scotland to play for your team for like 20 pounds. Yes, it's 20 times your wages, but you don't really think about it. Whereas now when you're, you know, you sign a Brazilian teenager to come in and play and you give them 30 million, yeah, yeah. you know, 30 million pounds. It's like, yeah, like the, these numbers are like, they're almost, uh, fictional numbers. You know, they're, like the numbers are so big, the numbers are so big. It's like, they're not really real. Like it's like monopoly, you know, for the average person, you know, what's the, what's the difference between, you know, 500 paying $500 million for a team or, Seven hundred million dollars for a team. You know, it's all mythical money. You make a really, good, you make two really good points there, Mark. As well, I mean, there are several times in the book where we have to say, yes, that's ten billion pounds. You, know, you actually have to repeat it so people know that you haven't got the figure wrong. And also, we we found ourselves in the pod every now and again recently saying things like, oh, he, o- he only costs ten million pounds, or he's only getting paid a hundred thousand pound a week. And it's like. When did when did ten million pound become only ten million pound? But it's that, as you say, these 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 numbers are not big numbers now. But you talk about the football right at the start. It's very difficult to research the history of football because most football there, there, there there's always been sports. I mean, right from the sort of eighteen twenty eighteen thirty onwards, there have been sports clubs, cricket clubs, and then and then rudimentary football clubs. But most of them didn't expect to exist for, for long. So they didn't really write down simple things like this is when our club started, this is these are the people who paid for it. So there's, there, there's so much documentary evidence missing. So much of the early history of English football is oral rather than written. But the fact is there never was a golden time when football belongs to the fans because the reason the Football League came into being in 1888 is that between 1870 and 1886, there are a series of, of factory acts that reduced the working hours of uh, of factories, of men and women in factories and mills, etc. The last of which um, made it illegal for factories to stay open beyond one o'clock on a on a Saturday. So the the, the, the factories had to close on a Saturday at one o'clock, and were then closed all day Sunday. So you had all these factory and mill owners thinking, well, what do we do? We've got these, we've got a thousand men, mainly men. We've got a thousand men. We'll have to let them go at one o'clock. Why don't we start playing football at three o'clock and then charging those thousand men a penny each to go in and watch football? So football's always been a money-making industry. It's just that the amount of money that's made was was relatively stable for for a hundred years or so, and the, the amount of wages that footballers got were, you know, footballers, professional footballers in the 50s and 60s, if you speak to, speak to now, were very happy being professional footballers. But they, they lived in the same street as the fans were most of them. They, might, they probably had a car, but it wasn't a fancy car. So footballers' wages in, the, in those times weren't, they were, they were higher than the normal working man's wages, but not by much. 
you know, they were still working class people. It's like we still talk about footballers' wages as weekly wages rather than as a, a monthly or, or a salary. But it, it, it was the, the advent of the Premier League that, of course, changed all that. And that, that genie is never going back in the bottle. So all you can do is try and find ways of forcing the, the rich clubs to look at ways of redistributing the money to the rest of them. But, yeah, that's... It's an old cliche, but that's like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. So there's a, there's, a, but I, I do think it's interesting that, yeah, as, as a, when I was a fan, not just as a kid, but until five, six, seven years ago, it didn't occur to me why. I didn't think about the, the, the economics of football. It's only when Palace nearly went out of business the first time in, in, uh, 1990 that I started, in 1999, sorry, that you start to think about it. And then when they went out of business, nearly went with five minutes from going uh, bust in 2010, you start to think about it. But until then, it didn't occur to you. You, you went to the game, you, you you cheered, you cried, you came home, or you went to the club, and that was it. You didn't, you know, your club, nine times out of ten, the club was owned by some local businessman. Uh, uh, and that was it. And then suddenly, football's changed beyond recognition, and, and fans now feel that they don't want to be left behind anymore, that they want to find a bit of information about these people that are buying their clubs or these countries that are buying their clubs. They want to know why it is that Chelsea are, are able to, to it, it seems, arbitrarily laugh at football, financial fair play rules. They want to know why Everton are being investigated by the Premier League in a much quicker way than Man City are. And, they, you know, and we're providing the answers to some of those questions, which is why, yeah, I mean... The, the thing with our pod, Mark, is that we're, it's one of the very few pods. We're, we're praying for the day we don't exist because the day we don't exist is, is the day that all the money that's made in football is distributed in a fair and equitable way through football so that the whole of football can survive. But that day is never going to come. You know, and, it, and it's a strange thing. It's, it's amazing how many people still now are surprised when we tell them that the way finances are distributed in sport in America is much more fair than it is here because of course people rightly or wrongly associate America with, with rampant capitalism and yet American sport is sensible enough to know that you have to have competitive leagues and that you know in the NFL for example it's a classic example that, and we're going to see that here in, in, in England you know for years we've been laughing at the, at, at the Germans and the Italians and the Spanish and the French where only one or two clubs can ever win the league and I can't see a time in the next five years where anyone else other than Man City wins the league. And that affects competitiveness. And that's going to affect the broadcast deal because the broadcasters won't want to pay umpteen million pounds to broadcast a league that the same team wins. You know, albeit Palace might beat Man City once in a while. But in America, they're sensible enough to know that you need a league where you, know, you, you might not have the jeopardy of relegation. But... Any team can win the NFL essentially within, you know, within reason because American um, organisers and finances on a, in a collective basis in a way that we can't do here and never will do here. One of the things that I talked to Kieran about when he was on the show, which he may or may not have known, is that in certain of the American sports, if you're if you own a team to make money, not necessarily to win. Like, your goal is to be bad, but um, 
like the more success you get, the more money you have to spend. So there are like perennial. T- that there are like in baseball, there have historically been say in the last twenty years, a lot of your sort of like smaller team, like teams in smaller cities. Um, yeah. You know they have revenue sharing. So like baseball doesn't have a an official salary cap the way the other sports do, but they have a thing called the luxury tax, which is I think something that they've talked about for some of the leagues in England, maybe not the Premier League, but like not necessarily cap. But if you want to play, if you want your payroll to be say more than a hundred million pounds, then for every dollar you spend over that, you have to pay that dollar. You have to pay another dollar into a fund, and then that fund gets split up amongst the other teams. So you have a team. So you have a team. So if you have a team like say Pittsburgh or Oakland, smaller teams. Like they have a losing team every, like a historically losing team that say lose two thirds of their games, their owners end up making money. Whereas if you're like the Yankees or the Dodgers, who want to be in the World Series every year, your payroll is like 200 million, so you're paying 100 million dollars in luxury tax. But you know you have such rich owners, their goal is to win, not necessarily to make money. And then you have some of the other leagues where you've got revenue sharing, especially, like you said, the NFL, you know, is famous for having, you know, their billion-dollar TV deal, and their merchandise yeah. is all split evenly, so that the, yeah. the two teams in New York get the same amount as Cincinnati or Green Bay. You know, um, Sorry, Mark, does, does the MLS have a, a similar deal in terms of distributing money? How does the financial the MLS work there? MLS is very weird, but MLS has a salary cap. I'm not sure how distribution works because I don't watch a lot of MLS. But right. the funny thing about MLS, which you probably famously know, is they have these things called designated player slots, which basically means, okay, let's say our salary cap is $50 million for our 25 players. So we can't go over that, but each team, and it used to be one, it may be two or three now, I don't remember, but they have these things called designated player slots, which basically means you can have a player on your team who is exempt from the salary cap. That's, uh, okay. that's, that's how the LA Galaxy had David Beckham making $20, 30000000 million or whatever it was, Playing on the same team with guys making like thirty thousand dollars. Why? Okay. I mean, there were people on the Galaxy who were like the young guys on the team that were like, you know, making barely minimum wage for a professional team and like living together in a house so they could afford it. Meanwhile, they <laughs> meanwhile they have David Beckham making ten times, fifty times what they're making, and the thing was. That each each of these teams has like say had a, at one time had one designated player slot, but they could trade a designated player slot to another team, probably for money, probably not for players because that would be weird. So like so the Galaxy may have at one point I mean, this is hypothetical, but like the Galaxy may have had like three designated player slots to pay David Beckham and Landon Donovan, and one of their, like, Latin, because, like, like a player from Mexico, like, uh, I forget the guy's name, but like a famous Mexican player. So they could, so they could, so they could be, 
way over the salary cap, but they have th their three exempt players don't count. Meanwhile, you could have, say, Kansas City doesn't have one of those players, doesn't have that slot anymore because they traded it to the Galaxy, which is like how, how Miami is going to be able to afford Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez and whoever else is there. That's why, like, a lot of the, when the, the, the sort of, when, when MLS sort of really did become the, the MLS retirement league for a while, like when, <laughs> when, when Lampard and Jer Gerard and Rooney all came over, you know, I mean, there's a reason they went to, like, certain teams, because they were the teams that could afford to have the salary cap exempt slots, because it's like, one of them went to New York, one of them went to L.A., one of them went to Washington. You know, those and, – and, and, and the other funny thing is those players also started picking and choosing because it was sort of like a retirement tour because they went to big cities with good weather and that played yeah. on – played because there's still a bunch of teams in MLS that play on artificial turf. Right. So And, like, I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I know for a while, like, teams started, like, jacking up their ticket prices in the second half of the season on the chance to see Lionel Messi play. But I don't know that Lionel Messi played an away game on artificial turf. Uh, okay. Because there were, when some of the big European players started coming over here, they weren't play they wouldn't play on the road on artificial turf, even though artificial turf is much better than it like famously used to be in the 70s and 80s when people's careers were ended because of it. Yeah, tell me, I will have to go, Steve Mark, by the way, but tell me, I, I'm fascinated by Messi, guys. I remember the first iteration of the MLS back in the late 70s when Pelé and George Best and Rodney Marsh were going to these wonderfully named uh, American clubs. And I remember the Seattle Sounders coming over to play Palace in a series of, of games, and it was all incredibly close. But with, with the likes of Messi, you know, outside the world of soccer, in the, in the rest of American sport, did, did anyone notice that Lionel Messi was, was now playing in the States? No, Messi coming here was a big deal. It was, I mean, that's, okay. that's the kind of thing that, you know, Messi would get MLS highlights like being put at the top of like the sports center shows at night, whereas oh, oh, wow, okay. traditionally, I mean, because because he's a, it's more than he's a soccer player; he's a celebrity, you know. And I mean, people who don't know about soccer have heard of Lionel Messi. Right. Okay. I mean, he's like you know, I don't even know really at the time people most people in America would have known who Maradona was. Like right. they, they all know Beckham. You know, and that may be about it. And but they know Messi. They may or may not know Ronaldo. But like Messi, Messi is definitely tr Messi in the United States is probably in the pay is in the Pele category. Where I'm sure if you were to ask your average person to name a soccer player, they would probably still say Pele. Because it oh, was still, okay. it was still. I mean, have you ever seen that documentary about the Cosmos? The one that's called. Once in a lifetime, about when the cosmos started. I don't know if I have. It's I don't know if it's online. I'll if I can find it, I'll send you a link to it. But it's about the Please whole. Do, yeah. But it's like because like the cosmos were owned by Warner Brothers, you know, oh, and right. so it was a big 
I mean, that was part. The Cosmos were part of Studio 54 and all of that, <coughs> that cultural thing. And because it was, people knew Pele, and they knew all of these guys were the people that the Cosmos were signing. They may not know who they were, but they knew they were important. They knew Giorgio Canali was important. They knew Franz Beckenbauer well, yeah. was important. They may not know who they were, but they were big stars. And, you know, and like Canalia certainly became a big star because he stayed in New York and he became a media person. You know, so, yeah. you because know, he used to be on, because you know, once, uh, once Satellite Radio had a soccer channel, you know, he was like one of their big stars because, again, people who are my age who are now in charge of, you know, media companies – Remember Giorgio Canaglia playing for the Cosmos in the 1970s. So, but, you know, I think, because I just heard uh, on the Guardian pod, one of them was talking about being in New York, and there's now, like, a big, huge soccer thing in Times Square called, like, Pele Soccer or Pele New York Soccer or something like that. So it's like Pele's name as a brand still resonates you know, in 50 years after he played and, you know, two or three years even after he's now passed away. Yeah, that's interesting. But we mentioned the pod. Uh, I briefly mentioned the Guardian pod. But you are competing with the Guardian Football Weekly and the FSA Awards for Best Football Podcast. So we certainly would encourage people to go to the FSA. That's Football Supporters Association. They're uh, an, or, uh, an organization in England that it's – the the people who are looking out for the right and proper thing to right and proper to borrow a phrase, you know the people who are complaining about ticket prices and kickoff times and certainly this ludicrous yep. Christmas Eve kickoff that you guys are probably going so, to be having this year, which has infuriate uh, that's the latest thing to infuriate football purists, if I could probably say. It's um. Uh, like I say, Mark, I'm just going to say goodbye in a moment. But the, 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 the righteous anger about the Christmas Eve kickoff, I, I, I'm I, I, actually I'm, I'm trying to find the right words now. That so it, it's really interesting because Christmas Day football was a tradition here for for quite some time through the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. I think the last game on Christmas Day was around. 1963, but that was a very different time, and the, the games were early, and and um, there were always local derbies, and the, and there were occasionally if Christmas Eve fell on a Saturday, there would occasionally be one or two games, but there was there's no tradition. You know, Boxing Day is the day that we play soccer here, football here. That's the big that's the big traditional football day, and the fact that this, this game is and you know, Christmas Eve, this country stops about four o'clock on Christmas Eve. The train shut down, the buses shut down, people go home. Um, the fact that they're playing this game at five o'clock on the evening of Christmas Eve, how Chelsea fans are meant to get out. And, you know, everyone's calling for a boycott of the game because it's the broadcaster, uh, uh, the broadcasters who have decided they want this game. The, the fact is, unfortunately, that the, the way people support their football clubs here, it will probably still be a sellout. The away end, the Chelsea fans will still travel, Wolves fans still will still travel. But it's it's just it, 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 
it infuriates me. And again, it's all down to the money. When the broadcast deal is so huge, when the broadcasters are paying the Premier League so much money, they can ask for what they want. Essentially, they don't give a monkeys about whether the fans can get to games or not. Essentially, because they know that they will. You know, they can change. They can. They can. You know, Arsenal played away at Newcastle last week at 5:30 kickoff. You know, and it, it's 270 miles away. Now, in, in, in the states, that's not a, such a big issue. You, you know, you, you, people fly everywhere in the state. Here, you can't get back from from Newcastle to London after half past six. But the broadcasters don't give a stuff about that. They don't give a stuff about. And the fact is, there's no demand. No one wants to. No one wants to watch it. I, and if I could, I could almost understand it if it was Liverpool, Everton, or Man United, Man City, but. It's such a random fixture to choose, and it's just, you know, it, it it's infuriating. But it just indicates, and again, it's one of the reasons that why our pod is so popular and so necessary. It just indicates that you know, spending that much money on the broadcasting deal buys you an awful lot of um, <laughs> buys you an awful lot of whatever you want to do with the game. Basically, and it's just, it's just not right. It's just bizarre. That's why the Football Supporters Association is so important. I've, I've got a feeling the Guardian haven't been nominated this year, so we may we may have a chance of winning because normally they they mobilise their huge numbers of listeners to to phone in and vote. So that's how it works. So, uh, but it's it's an it's a I, I should do what nominees always do. It's a pleasure to be nominated, and I congratulate whoever it is that wins instead of us. I don't mean it. It's the sort of thing Kieran saying he does mean, but I I really want to win it. But yeah, it's it is a it is an honour to be nominated by, particularly by the Football Supporters Association because they are we have a, a a good relationship with them because they represent values that we very much share when it comes to modern day football. And I think all of the I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think all of the nominees because they put out a call for nominations. So I'm. I would assume that the people who are nominated for the final award are the were the top nominees. I don't know that for sure, but that would certainly make sense. So if nothing else, that means you know your pod is one of the four, five, six ones that probably got the most nominations. Which, which I hope is, so. Yeah, that, that would be that would be really nice. I mean, and also we have this rather odd thing here. We have this magazine called Radio Times, which is the BBC's. Uh, it started in in 1929. It's it's the BBC's listings magazine. Basically, if you want to know what's on the BBC, in the in the old days, it was one sheet of paper that said you know seven o'clock news, eight o'clock light music, etc. But it's it's a very popular magazine. It's the BBC's announcement, and they they named us as their as the the best sports pod of the year. Not not the best football pod, but the best sports pod of the year, which is really encouraging because it indicates that people outside the world of, of football finance and outside the general world of football are aware of what we do. So we're we're kind of very proud of the impact we're having. And, and it, it, yeah, the, the fact is, well, I've been nominated for a lot of awards and I've, I've won some of them. And I don't believe those people who say, well, it's just nice to be nominated. It's, it's, you want to win every now and again, basically. You want to, to, to know you're you're relevant. But in in this case, it is just um, it, it's a, a delight that we've been nominated. We've both been invited to the ceremony, so you never know what could happen. This was like last year; it was only Kieran that's invited. So um, uh, read into that what you want, Mark. 
I was going to say, are you going to be Kieran's plus one, or did they give you your own ticket this year? <laughs> no, no, they've invited me this year as well, which is which is great because I, I, cause Kieran invited me last year as his plus one, but I'm so childish I wouldn't go because uh, I wanted my own invitation. So also, uh, it's it's brilliant going to any do with Kieran because he doesn't drink, so you automatically get twice as much free drink as you would do anyway. I, I jokingly said, uh, we'll let you go after this. I did jokingly say when I was I listened to the book on audio, I didn't read it, but uh, I jokingly said, do not play the improper and imp- uh, unfit and improper person's drinking game when you take a drink every time you reference taking a drink because y- you might have a problem. Yeah, do you know what? I um, that's entirely sub. I mean, it's it's part of the. It's really interesting. We've discussed this before, the way that any long-running panel show, the people on it take on the characteristics of a sitcom sometimes. Everyone becomes a particular character on it. And and Kieran and I particularly have have started to become characters in a way. And the fact that I do the drinking for two of us is one of them. But I actually, when I I did the, the recording of the audio book, about four chapters in, it suddenly I, I just thought, well, there's a lot of a lot of drinking going on in this book, and most of it is me. But I think it does sort of reflect it reflects the fact that English football, rightly or wrongly, is still very much a pub culture. There, there, there are very few football fans over the age of 21 whose match day experience doesn't involve alcohol in some way or another, or doesn't involve being in a pub in some way or another. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretending that it's uh, cultural and historical rather than any particular problem I, ha- I may have on my own mind. <laughs> Great. Kevin, thanks again for, for doing the show. We Hopefully it will not be two years until uh, we have you back on next time. I know we've covered comedy. We've covered wrestling. I'm sure we'll find – oh, I, I, I should – uh, quickly before you guys should ask how is your Zelda playing going we asked Kieran about that when he was here have you fit have you finished tears of the kingdom yet I I, I, I did I, I I I really enjoyed it and I went back to read and I, I, you know I it, it almost sounds like heresy or sacrilege but I actually have decided I preferred the first game you you you'll be if you'll be you'll be happy to know you you are not in the minority of thinking that. That well, there, um, there are, there are, yeah, there are a number of people who said while there were innovations, that, um, not that it, I mean, it's sort of a sequel, so you're always, it's always going to be a little not, not as original as the original to say, but just that, yeah, it just a lot of people. I don't want to say they were left cold by it. But it's just like maybe it was too big or some of the plot they didn't particularly care for. But most people I know much like that raved and raved and raved about the first one liked this one but didn't like it as much. Well, I think I remember because Ed bought me the first one for Christmas. Uh, Ali and Ed between them bought me a Switch. And and I remember having grown up on RPGs and having remembered the first Zelda game, I literally, my jaw dropped. When I, when I loaded the first, the, you know, the, the relaunch of Zelda on Christmas Day, 
I almost cried. I mean, literally, the opening scene when he, when he emerges and it's like, oh my God, it's just so beautiful. And the second one, I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's the graphics of Jordan. I just felt this slight, there's less charm about it in a way. There's elements of it that's too knowing. But my my biggest criticism of it is that I I haven't got an engineering mind. I, I'm not good with physics and build. And there's a lot of elements of the game where you, you need to build and create too much stuff. It's not. I love it. I love. All the exploring, I love doing that. I, I, you know, this, the second time is like the first time you play the game, you, you want to get through it and you want to beat it. And then you go back. Because I remember the second time I played the first Zelda, I enjoyed it even more because then I, I just took my own sweet times. I didn't, I just explored everywhere that I hadn't done before. And I found with this one, I went to start again the second time and I couldn't be bothered. It's just, there's, there's so many things you have to build and, and and work and climb this like it's it's quite my mind doesn't work like that if you see what I mean and it just it just wasn't enough it was almost too knowing if you like as well it's it's really I mean I did enjoy I mean again it's 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 an astonishing piece of work I really really enjoyed it and perhaps if I hadn't played the first one but I I I enjoyed the first one much much more I I have to say I, I found it not more manageable, but sometimes, you know, even in the opening level when you're on the plateau, the sheer size of it, you think, oh my God, how am I going to get there? You know, and it's like, and then you learn that, well, what you could have done is fashioned a rudimentary axe and and made some glue by boiling a squirrel down. And it's like, well, you just don't, my mind doesn't work like that, essentially. Right. So yeah, I'll be- I, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious to see. Uh, they just announced this week that there's going to be a live-action Zelda movie. So I'm curious to see how. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'm curious to see a what that'll be like, and two, sort of what era of Zelda. I mean, I would yeah, guess. Yeah. I would. I would guess it'll be more in line with the like the current Zelda style. Like maybe I don't know plot, but sort of this newer version rather than the class. I mean, if, I would guess probably, but I mean, we'll certainly see. So Kevin, thanks again. Um, My pleasure. I wish I wish Palace all the best, except for tomorrow, because I have a feeling we're going to need these points come the end of the season. Once we get however many points docked, we get docked. So uh, well, if it's, if, if it's any consolation, well, I think first of all, tomorrow is one of those rare games where I think both managers should just say to the referee before the kickoff, "Let's just go nil nil now," because that's how it will end. If it's any consolation, Kieran is convinced that you won't end up being docked any points. He's he's absolutely convinced you won't end up being docked any points. My my ho- my hope is that that they they asked for twelve, knowing that it will get knocked down to maybe nine or six. And I think six is very manageable given the way we seem to be playing better, or maybe. Maybe Dice now has the players to play more of the style he wants to play, and the Calvert Lewin is healthy for now. That I think yeah, I, that, I, that makes all the difference. My, my my guess is my my instinct is that there might be a six point deduction, but it will be suspended. That's my instinct. I mean, Kieran has reservations about seven seven seven, without a doubt. But he, he he's hearing that the the 
the, the case against Everton wasn't handled particularly well. And also because it's so... The Premier League won't want to set a precedent by deducting points from any team, I don't think. There might be a financial fine. I don't... I can't... And also, to be perfectly honest, I think that... The, I think Burnley, Luton and um, Sheffield United are so bad that you, you could be deducted 12 points and you'll still finish above them, to be perfectly honest. So, anyway. Uh, Anyway, Mark, it's lovely to talk to you. Let's find something else to talk about soon so we can do it again. Okay, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you, Kevin. Talk to everybody next time. And I'll be then.